0: Or by contacting me directly, Damon at exityourway.com. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone, welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I'm your host, Damon Pistolka. And boy, do we have a special episode for you today. With me, I can't even believe I'm saying this, I have Michael Hoolihan founder of Barefoot Wines. And we're going to also be talking about Business Audio Theater. But Michael, thanks so much for being here today.
1: Great to be here, Damon. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I'm just, I'm really excited. I got to tell you, talking before, talking to you before this, before today even, I'm so excited that we got to connect and talk. Because you, with, with Barefoot Wines, you did you, you kind of created your own and we'll talk about this a little you kind of created your own segment in the wine industry yeah. and and it was it was really interesting but getting to read the barefoot spirit your book it's a it's a uh, new york times bestseller if you people haven't heard it get, go out and get that that's worthwhile and then we're going to talk a little bit later about the business audio theater where you're telling the uh, telling the story of business entrepreneurs and founders and their until so their legacy lives on so I'm just really excited about today. Oh. So well, let's have my, some fun <laughs> yeah, let's do it I just that was that was a mouthful but Michael, kind of give us a little bit of your history up until you up until you started in the wine industry.
1: Wow well, you know it was. Uh... It was uh, really varied. I, I, uh, I sampled from a, a lot of dishes before I chose my main course, that's for sure. But yeah. uh, one of them, well, when I got out of college, you know, I had studied uh, business uh, administration and public administration. And so I went to work for the city manager of Anaheim, California as an intern while I was going to school. Uh, at uh, what was called Long Beach State College in those days, but it's Mm -hmm. California State University at Long Beach and uh, graduated from there. And then a job opened up in San Francisco and I took it and it was working with uh, the federal government, which was the uh, Housing and Urban Development and the SBA. And they were, in those days, they were rebuilding the cities. They were helping the cities basically rebuild their downtowns and they did this in San Francisco, Oakland, Seattle, Los Angeles they they did these mammoth projects and in the mm-hmm. process of doing these projects they had to move people and businesses out of harm's way they would like they would like take six or seven blocks and level them And then they would come in with a plan and they would rebuild them. Well, what happened to the people that were in those six or seven blocks? So that's where I come in. So they would get these young guys coming out of college to go in and talk to these people who were about ready to be moved. And so I became a business relocation specialist, they called me. And so I would go in and talk to folks who were in business in a project area and i would help them get their business uh codified to the point where they could be moved to a new location and stay in business and not sue the government and win Uh so it was cheaper for the government to help them so i became a business consultant before i knew it and i was doing things like you know documenting businesses like little business like hardware stores you name it You know, from the time they unlocked the key in the morning until they locked the door at night, everything was documented, you know, how you clean the latrine, you know, how you smile for a customer, you know, all that stuff, how you make a bank deposit, how you hire, how you fire, all that stuff. And so writing these big manuals and after doing like maybe 10 or 15 of these, I began to realize that there was a lot of principles that business had in common and there were Mm -hmm. things I learned in one business I could apply to another and then one day I quit my federal government job because it was federal government. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to wait for your boss to die, you know, to get a raise or a promotion. Yeah. And my grandmother, my Irish grandmother, uh, who was still alive said, gee, Michael, you know, you're, you, you had all that security. How could you give all that security up? You know? And I said, but grandma, you know, I wasn't going anywhere. So I, became an entrepreneur at that time. And I started a couple of different businesses and I started getting calls from some of these people that I'd helped uh, working Mm -hmm. uh, in urban redevelopment. And they said, you know, you did such a good job moving my business. I'd like to expand my business. Can you come and help me expand my business? So I began writing basically what we call today franchises. And in the process... Uh, I became a business consultant, and I realized that I didn't have to be, you know, living in San Francisco. That I could live anywhere I wanted to with this skill. So I moved to the wine country. I wasn't really a wine guy, uh, but I loved I loved the river, and I I loved the you know the redwood forests, and I loved mm-hmm. the ocean. And you know, I mean, that's where I would run away to every time I had a, t- a chance to escape the city. Anyway. So I was an urban refugee. And when I got here, I met this beautiful girl that I wound up sticking with for like 39 years, Bonnie Harvey. And she was also a consultant, but she was in the other end of the business. She was, she was helping people organize their offices and, you know, collect debts and stuff like that, the nitty gritty. And I was basically helping people subdivide their property and expand their business and stuff like that. But when you move to the wine country, you get sucked into the vortex of the wine industry because that's where the money is. So yeah. we wound up working for people in the wine industry, and that's how we got involved. And um, so that's the background. Yeah. Um, yeah. So
0: so there's a Pretty crazy, there's, huh, Damon? No, I know it's awesome, but you talk about Bonnie, and I, I still I, I remember reading the the part in the book where you talk about. When you first saw Bonnie when she came into that bar. Yeah. Can, can you explain that a little bit? Because I think that that's well, you a know, that
1: ahead. was that was that was a long time ago, okay, in a galaxy yeah. far, far away. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, we had live rock and roll bands, you know, with a four-horn rhythm section, lead guitar, bass guitar, scratchy rhythm guitar, you know, uh drums and congas. I yeah. mean, when this When this group took off, everybody danced. And in those days, you pretty much had to ask a woman to dance. You Mm -hmm. couldn't just get up there and dance by yourself. And the women weren't up there dancing by themselves. But the women Mm -hmm. were in control because they could say no, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and uh, if enough women said no, you'd have to leave the club, right? Yeah, yeah. It's
0: time to go.
1: (laughs) But I was talking to my friends, a couple male friends, and we were in this club that we liked uh, in Santa Rosa, California, and this woman came in the door by herself, and I was impressed with that move to start with, and uh, the streetlight was shining from behind her, and she was wearing a really sheer dress, and I said, excuse me, guys, I'm in love, And they'd heard me say that before, but this time I didn't show up for four days. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was, it was, you know, I I met, I met somebody who I had something in common with, you know, just beyond the obvious male, female attraction. It Mm -hmm. was business. We, We were both business heads and we would talk about business in really objective terms, you know, and, uh, after, you know, and I, and I would, I'd say, well, have you discovered this? Yes, I've discovered this. And what do you think about that? And I, and we were on, we were just mm, like a couple of nerds, you know, business nerds. And so, yeah. you know, I was with her, I guess, for about uh, less than a year. And she came to me and she says, you know, I have a client, uh, he's a grower. And, uh, you know, he's owed for three years for his grapes. And this winery hasn't paid him a dime, and I noticed it on his books. And I was wondering if you'd go talk to these this winery and see if you can settle this debt. And I said, "Well, how much is it?" She says, "Oh, it's only about three hundred thousand dollars." <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, you know, did I just marry the mob or what? You know, yeah. I'm going to go press somebody for three hundred large for my yeah. girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. So I do, and uh, <laughs> so like he did. He, yeah. Yep, And the only thing I can get out of it is wine and bottling services because they had declared bankruptcy the day I showed up. They had no money. So I wind up with wine in bulk and bottling services and, uh, you know, now I got to come up with a label and I got to come up with, you know, uh, a uh, a distribution system and a marketing program and and all of this stuff. I have to learn the laws in every state. And, you know, but I don't know that. See, yeah. So and I, I yeah. give it to Bonnie and I say, hey, you know, I got it solved here. I got a I've got a, a trade agreement for 300 large instead of money. You know, we can do that other stuff. Let's just do a business and, you know, we'll clear this out in a few years. You know, uh, how hard could it be? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it took 20 years. Yeah. I mean, we got our butts kicked for the first 10 years, and then we did some butt kicking for the next 10 years. So it's, you know, even though we were business people, uh, and I think that that's what kept our humor is that we were looking at everything, you know, in an objective way instead yeah. of getting subjectively involved in it. We were going, look what's happening in this situation. What does it mean, right? And and we were taking notes the whole time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, Bonnie and I, we've written over four thousand articles on business, and uh, each one of those articles was like a hard way lesson, you know um from taking notes you know basically growing up in in business so that's that's how barefoot wine gets started you know it's now the the largest wine brand of all time uh you know it's amazing Uh, but it gets started that way and you know at the time our first office was in a little laundry room you know in a rented farmhouse Mm -hmm. It was uh, about seven feet wide and about 12 feet long. And the only reason we made an office out of it was we couldn't afford a washer and a dryer. Yeah. So my desk was a door with, you know, two two sawhorses in front of a, you know, a hot and cold water, you know, service and, yeah. and, a, and a drain. And I looked yeah. at that for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> well.
0: So it, it's so interesting because you went in to settle this debt. You're going to negotiate the the debt, and they said, "Well, we don't have money, but we can give you wine, and we can bottle it for you." And and you're saying, "Okay." But you you before that, you did you have any knowledge about what it takes to sell wine? The legal, the the anything not, like that?
1: Not a clue, Damon. Not a clue. <laughs> You know, and what's worse is we didn't have any money. (laughs) So like, you know, it's funny, I I turn around now in retrospect, the reason that we were so, you could call it creative, but I call it resourceful. and, And the reason that we were able to really turn over the wine industry uh, was because we had no money and no knowledge of the industry. Because yeah. if we did have the money and we did have the knowledge, we would have thrown money at things like advertising and yeah. offices and you know material yeah. and all that. And uh, you know, uh, it, and and what we did was extremely efficient. Uh, yeah. We took a look at it and we said, "What's the value proposition here?" You know, is it, is it the vineyards? No. Is it the winery? No. Is it the offices? No. So it's not bricks and mortar. You know, what's the value proposition? It's sales. Okay. Very simple. It's sales. So if you're not making sales, you don't need all that other stuff. And yeah. so many people get in business. And the first thing they do is spend a lot of money on the big millstone that pulls them down in the river. You know, yeah. what the heck? I mean, there's months when you don't have sales. There's years when you sell less than last year. And the fact of the matter is, if you've got that kind of financial commitment out there, it's going to bankrupt your company. You're not going to get going. And and today we work with startups, we advise startups, and we even help investors who are investing in startups. And what we want to know is, are they really lean? Let's talk about lean. Let's let's really talk about being resourceful. Let's talk about what is the value proposition here and let's not get distracted by what everybody else is doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean the, in the book and, and I'm going to ask a few questions about that. I mean, there, there is the, the, um, Oh, I got it in my notes here. The guy at Don Brown at lucky supermarket <laughs> It seemed like he was a, he was a hardball person that really taught you a lot about what you needed to do to get wine into these grocery stores.
1: Well, you know, when you are not born into the wine industry, when you come in from the outside or any industry uh, and you're broke and you're sitting on $300,000 worth of product, you've got to move it. You've got to, you know? Mm -hmm. And so now we're back to sales again, but you're not going to just sell it by putting up a sign. And so, uh, you, you know, you've got to be a little bit humble. You've got to be hat in hand. You, you've got to, you've got to, as we say, make friends in low places, you know, work with people who've got real dirt under their fingernails. I don't care if they're driving a forklift. I don't care if they're driving a truck or, uh, yep. or running a big bottling line. You ask them their opinion about what sells and what doesn't sell. And you go to the buyers. Well, this guy, he was gruff, you know, he's played in the business theater, you know, by uh, uh, an incredible actor uh, and really comes off snarky, which he was. And, um, you know, I, I just I just said, uh, by the way, he was the buyer for a large supermarket in California. Uh, that mm-hmm. had over 250 stores. So I mean this was plan A. You know, we bottle it up, we put a brand on it, you know, we sell it to the supermarket, they sell it, we get the money, we pay off the debt, we're out of there, right? With maybe yeah. $8,000 in our pocket, you know. But no, no. So the guy <laughs> says, <laughs> yeah, he says, first of all, he won't see me for 4 weeks and then he then he goes, "Yeah, you know, I I you know, what do you what do you want? What do you want, you know? What are you selling? You know, make it fast. I don't got all day. I'm really busy, he says in this like whiskey voice. And I, I said, well, I said, you know, we made a trade for a debt for a client. And, you know, we have uh, about $300,000 worth of wine and we can give it to you any way you want. How do you want it? And the guy sits back for the first time and he, he, he really – he really changes his look on his face and he goes, wow. He says, you know, he says, nobody ever asked me that before. He says, you're the first person to come in here and ask me what I want. Everybody else is telling me what they, what they want, yeah. what they've done, you know, what the prices are and what the programs are, what the marketing is. And you come in here and ask me what I want. Well, I'll tell you, he says, get out a pencil. He says, can you, you know, write this down? So I said, okay. He says, are you ready? I said, yeah. He says, okay. He says, give me a salt and pepper act, make it better than Bob and cheaper than Bob, and uh, put it in a pig. He says, you got that? And I'm writing this down, salt, pepper, Bob, pig. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking to myself, shut up. And he says, can you do that? And I said, yep, we can do it. (laughs) And so then uh, he says, okay, get out of my office, you know. And uh, I'm out halfway down the hall, and he goes, "Hey!" And another thing, he says, uh, he says, hey, "Don't don't make the label, you know, a castle or a chateau, and don't make it a leap or a bridge or a lake." He says, "I got too many of those. I can't sell anymore." He says, he says, "Make it a name that's the same as the logo. The name is the same as the logo, and make the logo." visible from four feet away so she can see it when she's pushing her cart all right now get out of here you know well i just got the equivalent of a master's degree in in uh, uh in wine merchandising or for that matter any kind of brand you know a package of yeah. merchandising in about 37 seconds from a guy who didn't want me in his office. And he was telling me the truth and he was yelling at me. Right. And he was kind of, you know, irritated that I was so dumb about it. And so I go to my friend I said, can you translate this for me? And he goes, yeah, what do you got? And I said, well, what is the salt and pepper act? He says, Oh, that's easy. He says, it's a red wine and a white wine. I said, well, tell me who's Bob. He says, Oh, that's Robert Mondavi. I went, Wow. Got to be better than Rob Madavi. Got to be cheaper. That's going to be a tall order. I said, just tell me one last thing. What's a pig? He says, oh, a pig? He says, that's the big fat bottle of wine. It's not the 750 milliliter. It's not the one we think about that's the fifth. This is the big fat 1.5 Magnum. I went, oh, my God. So this guy is telling me that the way to enter the market is with a 1.5 liter package. I would have never thought of that in a million years. See?
0: Yeah. So yeah. The,
1: guy, the guy was rude, but he was giving me the keys to the kingdom.
0: Yes. Yes. Because like you said, and this is when I was reading the book, I was, I was thinking, this guy was telling you that the most critical information from someone that has to sell just a gazillion cases of this stuff every year. He would say, make the label big enough so people can see it from four feet away. Well, that's brilliant. How many times have you had to pick up a wine bottle and look like this? you know, just about get out the magnifying glass to read anything on it if you wanted to. And, and then, (laughs) then he was talking about get, get a big enough bottle that it, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a, a, a 95 plus uh, bottle yeah. of wine it just has to be this has to be a decent wine in a big bottle that that people can can see what it is and recognize the brand
1: yeah and he he was telling me where he had a space on his shelf not just his shelf but every chain store and every package store there was an opportunity to compete at the 1.5 liter package ah. uh, level and and that was incredible because that, you know, uh we, we we have a saying at barefoot, you know, strike where the enemy is not. And so the enemy was not at the 1.5 level. They were at the fighting varietals in the 750s. So we got established in the big package, but uh, you know, it wasn't that easy. Nothing's, you know, you can't yeah. say that was the one thing, of course. <laughs>
0: No, no, and you know, and through the book you talk about, you know, just all the trials and tribulations of of actually growing it, but uh, and not, but we'll get but get to that. So back to the three hundred thousand in wine. How how long did it take you to sell that first three hundred thousand dollars worth of
1: wine? Well, it took. It turned out to be about eighteen thousand cases, and uh, it took us probably uh a year to sell eighteen thousand cases which is actually we didn't know it but was really fantastic because there are yeah. wineries out there that are only like six thousand case a year wineries and we were yeah. we were selling that a year eighteen thousand yeah. and when I went back to uh, to to Mr. Brown and I said look I've done everything you asked it's the salt and pepper act it's in a pig It's the same price as Bob. It's about the same quality. Uh, And you know what? She can see it from four feet away. And we got a name, Barefoot. It's the same as a logo, a Barefoot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's everything you asked for. I said, how many truckloads do you want? (laughs) He looks at me like I'm from Mars. And he says, are you crazy? He says, you put a foot on this. He says, nobody's ever seen a wine with a foot on it. Nobody knows barefoot. He says, are you going to put a million dollars into advertising? I said, are you kidding me? I I don't have a thousand dollars for advertising. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: You know, I'm trying to trade. I'm trying to trade it away. This, this, this asset here for money so I can pay my debt. And uh, he says, well, he says, I can't take it. No chain store will take it. No, no box store will take it because nobody's ever heard of it. And if you don't want to put money into advertising, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. So what am I going to do? I said, I, I bottle it all for you. He says, well, he says, I guess you got to go sell every mama, papa and every independent, you know, because the big boys are not going to have anything to do with you. So I go out and I start selling these little mama, papas yeah. in uh independence. And they got the same problem that Don Brown has, you know, is there any advertising behind this? We've never seen anything like it. And you know what? It was not selling. I mean, I I can't kid you, it it was not selling. And so a month or two went by and we were freaking out because the chains weren't touching it and the locals were looking at it like, are you sure about this? And so then we get a call. From a guy in Chinatown, San Francisco, who's the head of a uh, uh, in, in, uh, uh, of, of a neighborhood association, and he's trying to raise money for slides and swings and sandboxes and jungle gyms for an yes. after-school park for kids in his neighborhood to keep them off the street. And I mean, I really identify with what the guy's trying to do, but I can't help him. I don't have any money. The guys yep. ask me for 50 grand. I answered the phone. I said, are you sure you got the right number? He goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> he says, you're a very wealthy, you know, well-known <laughs> business. You can." And so I said, well, I don't have any money, but I'll give you some wine. And uh, maybe it'll loosen some people up. They'll write a bigger check. And, you know, maybe you can auction it off and raise money and buy a few slides. He says, okay. And I don't hear from him anymore. But I noticed that the sales in his neighborhood take off. And I thought to myself, this is really interesting. Yeah, I wonder if they'll take off in another neighborhood. So we went to another neighborhood, found out what they were trying to do, gave them money for their not money, but gave them wine for their wine. fundraiser. I wish I had the money. And sales took off in that neighborhood. And we called that worthy cause marketing. It was yeah. before cause marketing. And the idea was to get them to get the members of the nonprofit to give them a social reason to buy our product and to turn uh, customers into advocates. And so that's how Barefoot got started. Uh, and we supported now before, like I told you, I fell in love with the wine country because of the, the trees and the ocean and the river. I didn't say I like the wine a lot. Well, that was our passion. Both Bonnie and I work conservationists because we both grew up in big cities. She grew up in Portland. I grew up in San Francisco. And we we saw all the infilling. We saw all the suburbs. We saw it just getting bigger and bigger. And for us as kids, it was harder and harder for us to get into nature. We had to drive, you know, when we were kids. You could walk to nature. But mm-hmm. but then you had to drive to it. And then you had to drive an hour. Then you had to drive a couple hours. It was crazy because the cities just yeah. kept getting bigger. And so we were conservationists and that was our passion. And we figured out a way to use that passion as an advertising program by supporting groups that were doing just that.
0: Wow. wow. <laughs>
1: it's interesting, huh?
0: Well, it is. It is. And that's, that's the thing that I think you're... Your need to be frugal. It's like you said. If you had had all kinds of want of money, you would have just done like everyone else. You would have been out there buying the ads, making the flyers, the big displays, and everything else. But as you were doing the worthy cause marketing, you were able to drive a grassroots uh, customer base. And then were you then able to? Se- you were selling wine then into the local mom and pop grocery stores around these these areas where you're doing the worthy cause marketing? Is that how it kind of started to organically grow or how did it?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, the guys from Stanford will tell you about target marketing, they call it. Yeah. This was target marketing. We were we were supporting groups that were within 10 miles of the retail stores where our products were for sale on the shelf so these were like in the same neighborhoods okay so the folks that were coming in had seen our brand at their fundraiser and thought to themselves oh i know these guys they support us you know for the yeah. for the kids park after school kids park you know i'm going to try their wine out Oh you know it's pretty good maybe I'll tell my friend because maybe they'll support us some more and so yeah. that's how we that's how we did it but you know we weren't we weren't bragging to the general public and saying oh we're supporting all these worthy causes we're good guys and that's why you should buy our wine we weren't even doing we weren't talking to the general public yes. we were only talking to the nonprofit organizations and their membership because we had no customers, so we thought, well, heck, if we can get some customers, you know, we're, we're better off than having none.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my. That is, that is so interesting and innovative, too. And in the time, you know, you really took that a long ways to develop that as your main way to market. And you helped so many good causes by doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We took it across the United States. We we backed groups uh, in Oregon and, and you know, uh, Save Delaware Bay of all places, and, you know, the Okeefenokee in and, and Florida, and you name it. I mean, we found these conservation groups and we supported them. The Surfrider Foundation started in California and wound up being in every city that's in every beach around the United States, you know, including, you know, places like Michigan. You know, yeah. <laughs> and and we supported them. We helped them with their fundraisers and they supported us because they saw that we were real conservationists at heart. And it wasn't just a scheme to see how much wine we could sell. You know, it was mm-hmm. like it's a real thing. And we did something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. We took their goals and put them on tags on our bottles in the supermarket which was a venue that they could not get to to promote their goals so all of a sudden they had a new platform that they didn't have before and that helped them get the word out about what they were doing and who are they getting the words out to our clients and who are our clients they're women. They're 37-year-old women with two kids. Of course they're concerned about how clean the beach is and how clean the ocean yeah. is. Right. Uh of course they want to save the parks, you know. That's where they go camping in the summertime. So mm-hmm. this, this was uh a really nice marriage for us. And uh and we, we speak a lot about it in our book, uh, but we have helped hundreds of companies find and pair with worthy causes that help them sell their product and they help the causes promote their goals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the the way, when you think about this, this is, this is really a special marriage because for the organizations, by you hanging the tags on the wine in the store, you were bringing a, like you said, a new level of awareness for them. Cause you could have a boys and girls club down the street that nobody would ever hear about or whatever the organization is. But with that tag hanging there, that person that's in there, the, the mom that's in there buying a bottle of wine. Now she sees something about boys and girls club. She associates the wine with, with a good worthy cause. So when you're sitting here and for you, when you're looking at this, all these different bottles of wine to choose from, uh, I'm going to choose the one that's going to support the worthy cause in my area.
1: Right. Well, that's the thing, you know, we believe that all marketing is local and uh, the more local you get, the more powerful you get. Uh, uh, A lot of people, I I, I don't know what's going on in America today is that we're getting to the common denominator of uh, corporate style which is things get systematized uh, things get standardized and what are they doing at Nike and why aren't we doing that over here at Adidas, you know? And, you know, maybe there's a good reason you're not doing it. Maybe it doesn't really work for them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> maybe they don't know it isn't working.
0: <laughs> well, and it's not the same business, right? I mean, every business well, is ex- unique.
1: Exactly. But, you know, you have this, there, there's, what what's happened is we've professionalized the various different silos within corporations to the point where they've got their own national meeting, they've got their own website, they know what people are making in other companies that do what they do, so they become hired guns. So you don't have the kind of loyalty that we used to have uh, in corporate America. You now have this kind of a system. It's kind of like sports; people get traded off, right? Yeah. You know, it's what I re, I remember. Uh, what do you What are you rooting for anyway? It's it's laundry, right? It's it's yeah. it's a uniform. Yeah. And that's it. It's uniform. So we tried very hard to break that mold. Uh, we involved our people in all aspects of marketing and merchandising, and I don't care if a guy was an accountant, we had him in the store. You know, so he had to see what was really going on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and so when, when did you get to the point, you said you struggled for 10 years and then you killed it for 10 years. When did you get to the point that you said, I think this is going to be a business that might go somewhere?
1: <laughs> well, when we started to see that California brands like Trader Joe's we're using Barefoot as a way to introduce people in Iowa to what's going on in California. And we're coming right to Des Moines, Iowa with Trader Joe's. And you could go there on Saturday and shop and see what the people in California are buying right? Now your kids are going to school in California and California has always been this kind of like, I don't know, destination location. I don't know why I'm a Californian, but <laughs> we've got yeah. more problems than they do. But, but the thing is people have this magical thing about it. And so when I saw that, when I saw that these companies were leading with barefoot in their wine sections, I realized that it was because Barefoot was fun. It was retail entertainment. It wasn't stodgy. It was a way to add color and life to the wine section, which looked like a morgue, for God's sake. You know, it was just not fun. (laughs) And everybody was serious. as a heart attack, you know. And if you didn't know French words, you know, you were out of luck. You're not going to go tell somebody in the Midwest to learn a bunch of French words so they can drink wine. Yes. But if you show them a barefoot, they'll laugh and they'll go, okay, now here's something I can relate to. It's a very American image. So yeah. that's, that's what we, when we saw that, we went, okay, this is going somewhere. And that's when we realized we had to shift gears and go from basically an entrepreneurial mindset to a much more uh, international mindset because we expanded into 28 countries at the same time. So it was an expansion can kill a business too, because, you know, you can, you can expand so fast. So we lucked out. We, we really lucked out. We got a, we got a new um, CFO who was a cost accountant. Now it's different than a general books accountant. A cost accountant is the kind of guy who can say to you, you know, you're thinking about expanding, but you know you really shouldn't expand into New York because the cost of selling wine in New York is three times more expensive than the cost of selling wine in South Carolina. You should just concentrate on South Carolina. Now, that's the kind of advice that people need to get in business when they're in that critical expansion mode, which is, it's not the cost of goods. It's the cost of sales. Mm -hmm. It's like, Do you have to have a person in the market? How much does that cost? How much for dinners to kiss everybody's butt? You know, Uh, how much for free caps, how much for t-shirts, how much for this, how much for that, all this promotional material. And then, you know, all these other costs, like what are the taxes? What is, how much does it cost to move stuff around? What is shipping? You know, what kind of percentages are the retailers taking? Those kind mm-hmm. of things. So we expanded into the Southeastern United States, which was primarily uh, supermarket laws. You know, every every state in the United States has a different mentality regarding mm-hmm. alcohol. Um, uh, New York uh, has the uh, bottle shop mentality. One person can own one shop. That's it. So it's not like a chain store. Mm-hmm. You're not going to sell one guy and be in all the food lions, or you're going to sell one yeah. guy and be in all the publics, right? Yeah. So that's why we 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 expanded with caution and with the direction of a good uh, cost accountant.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So So you're sitting here, things are starting to hum, and you ended up selling the business. You know, you guys were doing. I think it was, if I remember right, it was over like six hundred thousand cases a year or something like that. Which is, you know, you were one of the biggest brands in the world at that time, right? Or in the U- U.S. anyway. Well, in the
1: U.S., fastest yeah. growing, fastest growing brand in the U.S. and top twenty in the U.S.
0: Okay, so then you ended up selling to Gallo. Yeah,
1: yeah, and so, you know, we 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 wanted to.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Explain, so, so, you know, I, I'm in the, I'm in the exit business. We help people sell. So right. were you thinking about this up to to the point that it's like, Hey, it's time for us to, to move on. We need to, we need to find somebody to buy or did it just happen?
1: You know, there's three reasons to go into business. One of them is, Oh, I love it. You know, it's my passion, you know? I love throwing pizza, I'm gonna have a pizza hut and I'm gonna throw pizza. That's fine, as long as you're throwing pizza, okay? And you, you really love it and you don't care about your time. And then the other one is, you know, my kids are gonna take over my business, it's gonna be a legacy, I'm gonna hand it off to my, you know, my oldest daughter and she's gonna take care of me when I get old, well, good luck with that because she's gonna to wanna to sell it about six months after you pass. And then the last reason for going into business is to build brand equity and monetize it. Or in straight street English, build it to sell it. So the whole idea here is that Mr. Big doesn't come knocking one day. I feel sorry for you if he does because you will not be prepared. If you're going to exit your business, you want to do it deliberately and you want to think about it from day one. In other words, you want to really think about who are the top five, you know, suspects that would buy my business and why? You know, is it a vanity buy? Is it a strategic buy? Is it a bolt-on? Uh, you know, why am I doing something in a space that they're not? Is this going to help them? Do they want to destroy the competition that I'm at? They all have all these different reasons for wanting to buy your business. But the idea is that the more prepared you are, the more you'll make because the moment that the word gets out that your business is for sale, you lose value right then because your salesperson leaves you know your your largest buyer says things like, you know I've been buying for you for years but you know this time I'm going to pass because I want to see what the new owner's going to do I want to know if he's going to guarantee the product I, I don't want to get stuck with product see. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is you keep your mouth shut and the last person that finds out that your business is sold are the people that work with you, buy from you and supply you. In other words, your stakeholders. So in order to do that, you really, and by the way, to answer your question, Bonnie and I wanted to sell it from day one. We just couldn't do it. You know what I mean? It's like I used to be a surfer. There's some waves you just can't kick out. you got to ride them. It's not a question. I mean, if you try to kick out, you'll break your neck. See, so the idea is, I mean, we were, we were surfing on this wave of debt, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the thing that you've got to think about when you're on a business. I mean, so you make a couple hundred thousand dollars one year. What do you say? Oh, honey, I think we should build a swimming pool. Oh no, let's have the airplane. You're going to do any of that. You know what you're going to do? You're going to buy a new rep in Iowa. See, and uh There goes your 200 grand you thought you made. You didn't make it. In other words, you don't make any money really if you're playing your cards right until you sell it. That's when you really cash in. And that's why it's so important to understand exit, to prepare for it, and to have the strategy. You know, it's not like Mr. Big is going to notice you. You've got to get your peanut in front of that elephant. And that in itself is a strategy. How do you do that? You know, it's it's strategic management. You're making decisions every day and you're saying, is this going to get our brand in front of the person we would like to acquire us? Is this going to make them notice? Or am I going to do this over here? See, yeah. So it's not like you have these freedoms that you think you do. You know, you're up against this desire to sell your business. Well, you better make decisions that are going to Make your brand valuable, perceived as valuable, interesting to your acquirer so that your acquirer says, you know, if I don't buy this, my competition will. This brand is getting too big. Here's the other thing. You got to go to lunch with a broker you got to go to lunch with a broker and you got to say, listen, have you sold any businesses like mine in the last year? Or do you know anybody who has, what did it sell for? What was its rate of growth? What was its market share and on and on and on until you know all the metrics that happened as a result of that business selling. Well, you don't don't sit out there and say, I think we'll have some business goals. Oh, what are our business goals? I'm sorry, they're already written. The minute that you went into that business, the business goals were written for you and they were written at the last transaction of the business that was just like yours that sold. See? And so the idea, and that's why we are valuable to our clients because we help them get out of business and we understand what they have to do and sometimes it's totally you know uh counterintuitive um, mm-hmm. but it gets them the attention they need it gets them the identity that they need so yeah. yeah
0: yeah that's awesome that's awesome that you you intentionally built it to sell it you sold it to gallo you worked for them for a couple of years to make sure the brand carried on and and then i think you 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 did this pivot, and you started the Business Audio Theater. I want to talk about that for just a moment, and 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 uh, what what got you? So, explain the Business Audio Theater first of all.
1: Okay, so you know, Bonnie and I, uh, we we were asked for years to write a book about Barefoot, and yeah. uh, you know. We wrote a book, but we didn't like it because it was the standard business book. Here's the three things you got to do, the five things you never do, and the 20 things your customer wants from you. You know, it's all outlined for you. Uh, You know, that's prescriptive text, and it's boring. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get a 24-year-old to read it. And so, and they're the ones that need to read it, you know, the next generation. And so we said, well, let's do a business adventure story. You know, it'll be a cliffhanger, you know. Uh, you won't know, are they going to get arrested? Uh, you know, are they going to get foreclosed upon? Is the bank going to take everything? Are they going to lose their top salesman? Are they going to lose their top buyer? What's going to happen? See, and you find out in the next chapter. And so we wrote it like that. And we, and then people started saying, oh, you got to speak at our school. So we spoke at 60 schools that teach entrepreneurship around the world, Mm -hmm. including Oxford, which we spoke at just two weeks ago in England. And crazy cool. And uh, these these young people love business presented this way. And about maybe five six years ago, we noticed that they were all coming in wearing earbuds, you know, and so. You know, I'm a boomer, so I ask boomer questions. I said, well, you know, what are you listening to? Is it, is it rock and roll? Is it hip hop? What is it? And he said, oh, no, I'm listening to a podcast on how to improve my business. Another woman said, no, I'm listening to War and Peace. The damn thing's so long, I can't sit still for it. So I looked at Bonnie. She looked at me and she says, we got to do this. We, we've got to do an audio book. So we went out and we bought the top five business audio books from Audible and we listened to them and they're all great. I mean, I learned something from every one of those books. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I have a lot of experience and I learned all new stuff. So I I highly recommend that you do this. But what I didn't like was that they were all read to me. They were Mm -hmm. all narrated to me. And I didn't like the idea that they were prescription. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. telling you to do this. We did this and then we did that. So it's first person. And I thought to myself, you know, we've got to do an audio book, but you know, we really got to think about, so I'm driving with Bonnie from Phoenix down to Tucson, which is one of the most boring drives in the world. Uh And I mean, you get to see some airplanes that are sitting there because it doesn't rust. It's so damn yes. dry. And so here comes Guy Noir, private eye on NPR on the radio station that we're listening to. Cause we always go to the lower end of the FMs and listen to, to NPR. And it's, it's, It's a nineteen forty-five radio show, you know, complete with sound effects and musics. And, you know, I knew she was trouble when she walked into the door, you know, or whatever. And (laughs) yeah. And so we thought that's the format we need to use. It's really audio theater. It's not it's not it's not read to you, it's performed for you. And we thought, this isn't very, intro- no, it's expensive, right? Because you got to have actors and actresses yeah. and you got sound effects and you got to have, you know, technology to do this, but it all exists and it Hollywood's is. come a long way. So we get a company in Hollywood, which we become really good friends with um, in a Sherwood Players Productions. And we work with Matt Wineglass, who's a great director down there. And he's done a lot of movies in his own rights. And we said, well, you know, we'd like to do something like a movie, but you don't need any cameras. It's all going to be, you know, audio. And he said, I love this idea. So we take our book, we turn it into an audio script, and we do it. And it wins top five audio books of the year from the Audiobook Producers Association in New York in 2020. And we're talking to one of the judges, and she says, we've never heard anything like this in the business world. This is nonfiction presented like fiction. Yes. And so uh, then we started, you know, then we we got critical about our own business and what we were doing. And we thought, I wonder if anybody else would like this. And, you know, I'm networked pretty well. So I I, I asked my network and I got in touch with uh a guy who's in the medical business and I, and I want to protect his privacy and, but he asked us to do an audio book for him. It's three hours long. It's six, one half hour episodes. um, And it's punctuated by little podcasts with the real doctor. So-and-so you know, what were you thinking, doc? Were you crazy? Why did you do this? But he gets to tell his story in the third person. Yeah. So somebody's acting him at meetings, Mm -hmm. and you know, in the airplane, in the car, you know, you know, in the operating room. Yeah. And so now you can really make it fun. See, Mm -hmm. and that's the whole idea. Because if you want to keep people's attention, they've got to be excited about it. So that's how we got into Business Audio Theater, and he's our first customer. And I just got back from Hollywood yesterday where we did a table read with some actors and actresses that are going to voice the parts. And I met the guy that's gonna do the music for it, and it's gonna be an Abbey Road style music. And, and we're mm-hmm. really excited about it because you know it's, it's a fun way to uh, preserve a legacy. And- Here It's interesting. Here's how he wants to use it. He wants to use it to attract, retain, and engage his stakeholders. The Mm -hmm. idea is if they can identify with what I had to go through to get this multi-million dollar business running, they're more likely to stay with me. They're more likely to want to work with me. They're more likely to want to give me credit. They're more likely to want to buy my services because they know that after all, I'm a real human being and I've got faults and fears just like everybody else and I've made a lot mm-hmm. of mistakes, see? And so that's what we're doing these days and we're really excited about it. I mean, this is this is so much fun. And when we were doing all those talks, There was other business leaders in the green room that we would meet backstage and Mm -hmm. we would talk to them and they all said the same thing. What's going to happen to my business when it sells? What's going to happen to my business when I exit? What is my son or daughter going to do with my business? I've worked so hard to develop this culture, you know, Mm -hmm. and this particular attitude that we have toward our clients and putting the customer first. I'm afraid that's all going to get lost by this corporate, you know, uh, uh standardization that is happening in the in the country right now and so we thought gee this would be a great way to save uh founders uh stories and preserve mm-hmm. their their legacy in a way that young people can identify with so there you go that's that's the uh, that's the long and the short of business audio theater and by the way you Know, uh, we're going to reward your clients for listening to all this. <laughs> we're going to give them a half an hour free episode from the barefoot spirit, which they're going to be able to download from your show notes. There'll be a link awesome. you can click on, and they'll be able to hear a, a half hour episode. And I'll, hopefully, they'll want to buy the rest of the book, you know. But yeah, even yeah, if that'll they be them, awesome I'm because this get a laugh is out of it.
0: like you said, this is a different way of portraying these these stories that founders have. And I think it's um, when you're in that situation where you want to really share the legacy and share some of the the goods and bads of, of really how the business got to a certain point, or or this is the generation, the founding generation, and share that story with the, the next generations, I think is a powerful way to do it. Um, because it's yeah, a video. You but you wouldn't get someone to listen to video for the time, and that's the thing with a podcast. People will listen to a thirty-minute segment, like you said, in a series kind of format. I think it's going to be really, really popular and and uh, interesting too. I, I interesting hope. Story. I hope.
1: I hope so, Damon. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's we're a startup, and uh, you know, we're learning while doing. But I, I can tell you, we're going to try to knock this one out of the park so other people will say, hey, look, this is not Michael and Bonnie doing their own story. This is Michael and Bonnie doing a third-party story. Yeah. You know, so it yeah. gives it a little more credibility.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Michael, I, I just I want to say thank you so much for, for joining us today. i I so generous with your time. And, um, man, I just – just thank you so much for sharing your story with, with us today. And, and we got some great comments here from Kenny and Kurt and, and others that, that were listening. Um, just thank you. I, I, I just yeah, love, love listening welcome. to it, love talking to you.
1: Yeah. And I, and I wish all your listeners, uh, good luck with their business. And, uh, you know, I hope that they get the big check when they exit. Um, and uh, you know we're we're here to help if if that if that counts for anything.
0: Very good, very good. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today again, Michael Houlihan, founder of Barefoot Wines, now with Business Audio Theater. And as he said, we're going to be dropping a link at the link in the show notes to give you a free half hour download to the part of the Barefoot's Wine story, so you can listen to to an example of the Business Audio Theater and. Just hope you enjoyed it a 10th as much as I did today, because you will be back to listen to more Uh, and lots of good nuggets of wisdom here. Thanks so much for being here, Michael. Thanks so much. And we will be back again later. Have a great time, everyone.